Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Red Bricks. Uh, today with us, uh, we have a guest, uh, Sorry Gurlavaleti. Sorry currently works at the head of R&D at Dr. Reddy's. Prior to Dr. Reddy's, he has worked with McKinsey, Qualcomm and General Electric. He has worked across multiple sectors like pharma, energy, automotive, consumer electronics and oil and gas to name a few. He's a mechanical engineer from IIT Madras with a master's degree in mechanical and materials from MIT. He's a 2008 graduate and a gold medalist of the PGPX program at IIM Ahmedabad. Welcome to this episode of uh, Beyond the Red Brick. Sorry, we're excited to have you on board. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me over. All righty, then let's get started. So uh, to lay some groundwork and, and the foundations of this entire discussion, uh, can we just start with a brief description about your current role and what kind of initiatives uh, you're leading at uh, Dr. Reddy's currently? Sure. Uh, thanks. So I'm uh, currently head of uh, genetics R&D at uh, Dr. Reddy's. Uh, I wear a second hat, which is as the head of global portfolio as well. So these are, the, these are my two roles. So let me start with describing what it means to be the head of uh, global portfolio in a genetic pharma R&D. Uh, genetic pharma is all about identifying products where there is a future opportunity or current opportunity uh, in various markets and developing them. And uh, of course, successfully getting them approved and launching. Uh, each business, we are present in multiple countries around the world, uh, US, Canada, Europe, uh, Brazil, Russia, of course, India, China, et cetera. Each of the businesses identifies the products which are going to be most relevant for their markets in the coming years. Uh, however, this is a long lead game, right? So uh, we develop products many, many years in advance of their launch dates, uh, given patent restrictions, given development timelines, and regulatory timelines. And there's also uh, different products have uh, relevance to different markets. So in my role as global portfolio leader, uh, I make sure that the, the value for the organization is maximized across all of these markets, uh, making sure that if there are common products that are to be developed for multiple countries, they're developed one time and uh, in a way that is meeting the regulatory requirements of all the countries, and also keeping an eye on the short, medium, and long-term growth of the company to make sure that the total number of products, the total value of products we're developing is in line with that. Along with that comes also allocating the money that you would develop, uh, that you would spend in development, uh, be it in R&D or in capital expenditure for the company, right? So resource allocation is a big, big part of uh, being, uh, taking care of the global portfolio. Now on my other hand, which uh, consumes majority of my time, uh, I lead R&D, which, which means to get the products developed. So we have a team of about 1,600 people spread across India uh, uh, in Hyderabad and in Bangalore uh, and in the Netherlands, uh, in the UK and a few in the US and a few in China and Russia. So we have team members all in, in all these countries uh, and uh, you know, we have about 700 projects going on at any given time. So that's the number of R&D projects that are going on. And we develop about 100 uh, to 120 new products we then extend them uh, to another 120 to 150 extension submissions to other countries, smaller countries, where we take what's been developed and then submit them to other countries. So every year we end up uh, you know, submitting about 250 dossiers around the world. So that's basically the, the scale of work we do. In my role, naturally, I'm looking at not only delivery, which is to ensure that all of these projects come out on time from, from the time we select a product to getting them filed and then getting them approved and getting them launched, but also at improving the health of R&D. So one, while one part of performance, 
the other is health right so i, I look at how we bring in new technologies into r&d how we build in digital technologies and how we also bring in new manufacturing technologies uh, so that we first test them out in r&d and then we are able to move them over to uh, commercial manufacturing so that our manufacturing is uh, state of the art and cutting edge so i think that's that's overall what i do yeah, th thanks for that uh, information sorry that's really helpful uh, just talking about r&d and the pharma space in india then uh, we just wanted to get your take on the innovation and the new product development uh, space that's uh, present in india because uh, we believe that uh, that domain india is currently la lagging in as compared to the rest of the countries and uh, globally as well so we just want to know uh, what currently is being carried on in that domain particularly from in india sure um, so um, i uh, if you look at uh, innovation and pharma uh, first of all we need to understand the definition of innovation is not just doing different things but also doing things differently so innovation has this dual uh, dual connotation uh, so often when we say that things are not uh, innovation is not uh, you know so strong in india uh, uh, we talk about uh, you know making nces and new chemical entities and new molecules uh, but let me give you the full spectrum of of the pharma industry right so obviously at the far right in the holy grail is to be able to develop a new therapy uh, a, a new actually therapy technology recently you're seeing gene therapy and cell therapy uh, and, and, and newer therapies, that's a, that's a far end of it. That's the most innovative. Uh, and the, at the second end uh, is being able to develop new molecules and new, new uh, therapies with existing technology platforms. And then you come into developing new therapies or new modes of delivering existing molecules. Uh, and then finally, you come into making generics, which are copies of existing uh, you know, uh, drugs, but in a way that is low cost and in a way that is innovative. Now, um, if you look through all of this, uh, India uh, is very strong in genetics. We are, we are the pharmacy to the world. Uh, we do genetics very well. We have also been quite successful at new formulations of existing drugs. That's something Dr. Reddy's and many of the other uh, generic companies in India have done a uh, fairly good job of, right? And these are new, new ways to deliver drugs, which um, either reduce the side effects or improve the efficacy or reduce the dosage required. Um, there is quite a bit of work going on in biosimilars in India, which is the more complex part of uh, genetics. Uh, but beyond that, if you go to NCE research, new chemical entity research, one might say that there haven't been very many NCEs coming out of India. Uh, but actually, that is not that that's not really true, right? Uh, Indian companies form the backbone of NCE research for many Western companies. So many of the global, uh, you know, uh, big pharma companies have R&D in India where we develop the chemistries, the formulations, et cetera. So India is an important part of the value chain. Now, having said that, there's also many Indian companies which have actually developed new therapies. I mean, recently, uh, Zydus got the uh, saroglitazor uh, to a very advanced stage of development. Uh, and you know, even Dr. Reddy's has our own discovery team called Origin Discovery uh, Laboratories in Bangalore. And we also work in the phase one and phase two A stage. So uh, the reason that India doesn't, uh, you know, is not well, well known in the circles of new chemical entity discovery is simply because it's extremely expensive, right? Uh, it costs several hundred million dollars to conduct a clinical trials, but we are seeing quite a bit of activity in India where uh, companies based out of India do the early stage development up to phase one or even phase two A, then out license the molecules. Now, this is all about doing different things, right? Uh, making different products. 
but if you've uh, heard of uh, the disruptive innovation case, uh, you know, uh, you know the, the book by uh, Clinton Christensen and the case study by Professor Saral Mukherjee that he does, at least he was doing this when we were uh, on campus. Uh, every company in any given space always wants to keep working up the value chain. So Indian companies started out making bulk drugs, which are APIs, then forward integrated to formulations, then went off into doing, you know, patented formulations or you know, non-infringing formulations. Then they wanted to do complex generics, biosimilars, NCEs, new chemical entities, and then new technology. So they, all these companies are trying to work their way up the complexity chain. This is where uh, you should expect disruptors to come in and do things differently rather than doing things, doing different things. And so there's many uh, companies which are now investing heavily in ultra low cost production technologies, such as continuous manufacturing, uh, single part processing, et cetera. And with ultra low cost manufacturing, the good old drugs, which we thought have been already genericized in our low tech and are not attractive anymore. There's players who are able to reduce their costs significantly. Uh, and ultimately that's also innovation. And, and we, we are doing both, at least at Dr. Reddy's, we're doing on the one hand, trying to work up the complexity curve and doing more advanced stuff, uh, but also working on things which are uh, dramatically reducing the cost of what's already out there. Uh, so I think there is quite a bit of innovation in India that's happening at both ends. And finally, let's not forget that when, when COVID hit, we were the first country which was able to you know, bring in Remdesivir, a generic of Remdesivir in record time, and a generic of Favipavir in record time. Uh, and also much of the vaccine required for the world is being manufactured in India. And many of the clinical trials are happening in India. So I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't play down India's ability to innovate. Uh, it's a question of what is the problem statement we're going after. That's important. Uh, thanks, Nauri. Uh, you know, that leads us to a pretty good segue into one of the other things we want to explore uh, as with you as head of uh, R&D at um, Dr. Reddy's is, is when, when COVID hit and when COVID-19 came across and suddenly the world woke up to, uh, you know, pharma companies and news about vaccinations and all that being front page news and you know, people just picked up a lot more information than they usually would have. And it became a topic of conversation, which was quite normal. So uh, in your view, uh, how has that industry uh, kind of taken to COVID, uh, you know, as, as the frontline industry to deal with the pandemic? Uh, how has your process, how have your processes changed the, the way you uh, deal with issues? And uh, if you can also, can we elaborate on uh, the steps that Dr. Reddy's has been taking for uh, fighting COVID as well as the vaccination efforts, which might be coming in the next few months? Sure, sure, sure. I think uh, obviously COVID was an eye opener. Uh, and, and first thing I want to acknowledge is that the entire Indian pharma industry, every single company, including Dr. Reddy's, really came forward at this time, right? People rose to the occasion. Uh, in the initial days, it was absolute chaos, but uh, pretty much every pharma company took a decision that being an essential services, uh, being an essential industry, we will keep our operations running. And it was uh, incredible how the government, as well as uh, companies around in various states of India, uh, you know, kept lights on. Uh, it was incredible. Uh, you know, initially it was a show of resilience. You know, people uh, we had people running 24/7 in our plants because it's not only about making COVID medicines; it's about uh, making all life-saving medication, right? With with globalization of pharmaceutical supply chain, uh, medicines from India going all over the world. Even in every plant, whatever we make, the raw materials come from around the country and sometimes outside the country. Uh, the entire supply chain got disrupted. So I think every company had to work really hard uh, to make sure the supply was re-established. And I think within you know, three or four days, we were back up and running almost full steam, right? Uh, and every day we would face a new problem. 
uh, we would run out of fuel, we would run out of packaging material, we would run out of raw materials, we would, of course, labor was a huge challenge, people moving around. Uh, we would run out of buses to carry people because we were practicing social distancing. Uh, we were running out of sanitizers. Um, uh, all kinds of things were happening. So I think the first uh, several weeks, uh, the industry really adapted very well. But then once you settle down, a few important factors start to come in, right? I think the uh, uh, the, the first and foremost is uh, relooking at the resilience of your supply chain. I think we had a close shave. Uh, we're glad that within a matter of a few days, we were able to reestablish our supply chains globally. Uh, but I think this uh, has created a, a relook from, from many governments and uh, public, uh, private companies in terms of how they will brace themselves for supply chain disruptions. I think that's the first and foremost thing. Uh, secondly, I think um, technology in manufacturing will evolve. Uh, there will be greater focus on automation. There will be greater focus on hands-free operation uh, because uh, the, perhaps the biggest, you can solve any problem, but you cannot force people to come to work if they don't want to come to work in a panic situation, right? Uh, so I think there will be a lot more uh, automation, simplification, uh, et cetera, that will happen in, in the area of manufacturing. Um, coming to R&D, I think we realized something very interesting and important at the time. Uh, around the time COVID hit, something something else interesting also happened. Our good old um, drug called ranitidine, which is used for heartburn around the world, Rantac, Histac, all, all very common uh, common names. You must have noticed now that it's out of the shelves. There is no ranitidine anymore sold in drugstores. So right around the same time, it was discovered that uh, most commercial manufacturing processes for ranitidine has a risk of producing a certain uh, impurity in the drug, which is cancer-causing. Right, uh, so uh, you know, so ranitidine practically got banned in a matter of weeks, or actually days, uh, and so suddenly all the other drugs to help with digestive uh, disorders became more more important and popular. Right. Uh, similarly, when COVID hit, uh, it was very uh, strange how various medicines started to get tested out for their relevance to COVID. The very fact that we have certain therapies right now is not because we have invented them bottom up. But uh, you know, scientists around the world try to apply existing molecules and see if it works. So obviously the first and the most popular was hydroxychloroquine, uh, which you know, there was some positive evidence and then later there was not so great evidence. Uh, similarly, remdesivir is a drug which has been around for a while. It's not a new drug. Uh, similarly, Avigan, uh, which, which we have approval in some countries, which is also marketed in India by a few companies as Fabiflu, et cetera, uh, is a pre-existing molecule. So uh, what happened was uh, COVID brought out the need that every drug is important and you never know when what drug is going to become relevant is either going to go into shortage or is going to uh, surface with some issue. Uh, so our approach really has been much more broad based on the, in, in the area of uh, portfolio management. And last but not least, like every other company in industry, um, uh, digitization and digitalization both uh, have, been, have been extremely uh, critical. And uh, we were able to, uh, I would say, largely tied, uh, you know, tied through this period because of the heavy investments we made on uh, digitalization. Yeah, thanks. Sorry, that again uh, gives us the right segue into our next question. So, uh, we talk about digital innovation across different industries and sectors. So, I just wanted to understand what kind of digital innovation is uh, being done in the pharma sector, specifically related to the Indian markets. If you could throw some light on that, that would be helpful. Sure, sure. 
So I think if you just go back, uh, one additional thing I want to say, and, and then digitali digitization and digitalization will help a lot. <clears throat> COVID also has brought out the need for speed, right? Uh, and so all the efforts at the speed and low cost. Uh, so, uh, you know, the story of uh, us launching Remdesivir is one where we went from laboratory R&D to the patient in 90 days, end to end. This is a record time for developing a drug in R&D, uh, transferring the technology to manufacturing, qualifying new equipment to, ma to manufacture the drug, uh, making a regulatory submission and getting regulatory approval and making launch stocks and releasing launch stocks. And this happened with raw materials coming from China, India, uh, from somewhere in Gujarat uh, and somewhere in, in, of course, in Hyderabad. Um, and, and then pushing a lot of paper and having a lot of reviews with the DCGI in Delhi. So I think uh, uh, COVID has also said, you know, shown that you can crunch time and crunch space uh, in a very uh, short period of time, right? Uh, so uh, digitization is, I think, something which is uh, obviously a huge enabler to this. Uh, let, let's say how we're looking at it, right? So I look at uh, uh, use of digitization in two areas. One is in management systems and the other is in technology. What I mean by that is uh, when you go digital, you're able to manage your organization, you're able to manage your planning, execution, communication, finances, uh, all of these much more efficiently. Uh, naturally, there is a, there's an element of reporting and there's an element of prediction. Uh, like like you would see in any any uh, digital tool, so uh, digitization helps a lot in in not, in not just explaining the present, but also in forecasting the future in those areas. Uh, on the other hand, I think the area that as as an R and D person I'm, I'm most interested in is how uh, digital and analytics are transforming uh, the science and technology part of R and D and manufacturing. So. Um, let me start with manufacturing. Right? That's the easier one to envision. Uh, we produce about uh, 5 billion tablets and capsules uh, a year, uh, you know, for the US market alone, right? So uh, there's a tremendous amount of data that comes out when you're making these billions of tablets and capsules across maybe about 50, 60 marketed uh, products. And across 50, 60 marketed products, probably 250 to 300 SKUs. Uh, that that's or maybe even more, right? Just individual strengths alone would be 250 to 300, and then if you add packaging and language and distribution complexity, it's a lot more than that. So uh, we collect a tremendous amount of data, and that requires um, you know instrumenting every equipment in manufacturing, uh, having sensors, uh, uh, automating or or digitizing the uh, production process. So you know many companies in the past used to use paper and pen records. Uh, to have instructions for manufacturing. Now you have a digital MES manufacturing execution systems. And you have digital MES. On the one hand, of course, these are important for compliance reasons so that you cannot alter uh, the, the data what what, you know, what was produced. So you can't go back in time and fudge uh, process information. But uh, digital batch records and digital process, uh, production processes also help in ensuring that you're able to analyze so when today something goes wrong, if you have a batch which is behaving differently, uh, a batch of tablets which is behaving different from the others, there's tremendous amount of data and information available today. <clears throat> so this really helps us in our process robustness uh, discovery, in, in fine tuning machine parameters, and also in predicting what is about to go wrong. Right? There is a long way to go uh, in pharma. I have personally seen 
certain other industries being much further ahead of this. For example, when I was at GE, uh, there is a lot of work in advanced analytics, uh, predictive uh, control, uh, right? Remote monitoring and diagnostics. I think there's a lot further to go. Similarly, in the uh, semiconductor industry, there is a lot of uh, uh, much, much more sophisticated SPC statistical process control, as well as inline control and monitoring. But I think I see the pharma industry going in that direction, <clears throat> right? In manufacturing. Now, coming to R and D, as I told you, we we are working on about 700 uh, projects at a time, out of which about 250, 300 are. Uh, completely clean sheet new developments. So uh, there, I think there is also quite a bit of work that we are doing and quite a bit more to do in terms of uh, digitizing the way we conduct experiments. You know, every single experiment that we conduct, the data should be available digitally. Uh, you should be able to plan your next set of experiments uh, directly based on the results of the previous experiments, which one doesn't have to manually uh, sit and type and interpret. Uh, reports have to be generated automatically, right? If you have conducted 20 experiments and you want to see trends and parameters, uh, you don't want to manually put them in an Excel file and you know and try and analyze what parameter is causing what to change. Uh, documentation is huge. This is a highly regulated industry. So everything that you do has to be documented. So it's quite a bit of uh, opportunity for us to simplify documentation through, uh, through digital means. Um, uh, the other thing I'll say is, there's a lot of text analytics also I see being quite relevant, right? We deal in huge amounts of documents, huge amounts of reports. Uh, every dossier that we submit for regulatory approval is between 10 and 20,000 pages. So we submit 10 to 20,000 pages of information to the US FDA or the EMA or any, any agency. Now, I, I actually say they must be using some digital tools to process that much information. They take close to a year to approve a drug, uh, but we want to take we want to you know, scan all of those, understand those, error-proof those, cross-check those, and probably even generate those through digital means. Similarly, we read uh, tons and tons of patents. Uh, you know, There's a lot of patents to understand. We file a bunch of patents. So again, I think uh, text analytics, natural language processing is, very, is a very interesting and important tool for that. So there's quite a bit of, uh, I would say, innovation that's possible and is happening in this space in the pharma industry. Now, this is from a generic perspective, right? If you look at the innovative perspective, majority of the work that you see is in clinical trials. And about, uh, you know, one is either uh, target identification, identifying what molecules and what targets, uh, discovery, drug discovery, and clinical trials. These are three areas that you'll see a lot of uh, digital analytics in innovative pharma. I don't think a consistent approach has evolved for generic pharma. And some of what I talked about was our attempt to getting there. Sounds good. Uh, thanks a lot. Sorry for that. That's really helpful. We'll probably shift gears over here a little bit and then go back to your time when you decided to pursue your PGPX program. So I uh, just wanted to understand your thought process and why you decided to pursue the MBA from IMA and especially the PGPX program because you've done your master's and you're working in the US. Yeah. So at that point, just wanted to understand what your thinking was. Maybe that will help people who are trying to make the decision today. Sure, sure. No, thanks. So um, I had spent, uh, by 2008, I had spent uh, uh, two and a half years doing my master's and then another six, seven years doing research in the US. Uh, and I was, uh, I had spent uh, two uh, solid R&D and product development stints, one in GE and one in Qualcomm. Um, and I was uh, to make a decision because I had done a lot of product development work, but much of my work was very long term. <clears throat> and, you know, 
more than 50% of the work that I did, the technologies that I developed um, were actually never going to see prime time. So the connectivity between what is needed by the market and the amount of research work we did and, and the product features that we invested in was always lacking, right? And as a scientist, you're always doing what you can do, not what is needed by the market. So it was pretty much a decision for me that at some point I'll have to do an MBA to understand what is needed by the market. Uh, and then I should obviously be able to connect what I can do. Uh, along, alongside that also came a personal need for me to come back and be closer to my family in India. So I said, let's combine these two. And um, uh, obviously I appeared, uh, I, I, I tried IMM the bad and ISB, you know, two, two uh, you know, uh, institutions I approached. And uh, while I had a choice to go to both, uh, you know, I am Ahmedabad was clearly a, a winner for me, uh, mainly because it was a much more, uh, it was a much smaller class size at the time. Now I know it's bigger, but the amount of personal attention and relationships that you can form uh, academically and you know, professionally and personally were much better. So that was one. And more importantly, I saw people, the average experience of people coming to I am Ahmedabad as being much higher. Uh, so uh, that was something that I decided that I would much rather fit in this cohort with much more experience than with a very early stage experience, uh, practically, you know, one or two years out of college or your first job. Uh, so having come, the, the other thing that really impressed me was the interview process. I, I really appreciated the quality of questions that were asked in my interview, right? Uh, and they kind of showed that it was aimed at being uh, a general manager. It was, it was very interesting. Uh, the the uh, uh, the professor who I met in my interview uh, was later one of the professors who taught the course uh, role of a general manager. Then I was able to connect the dots because the question he asked in my interview was, suppose you're the CEO of GE, what would you be most worried about? Meaning, what are the problems you're trying to solve in a day-to-day -day life? And it took a few years for me to get to being a CEO minus one. Uh, and today I'm a CEO minus one. And, um, and, and of course, in any job, you have to wear your boss's hat. So I, I, if I wear my CEO's hat, now I can see the answer to that question, right? And it took probably what, uh, maybe eight or nine years for me to get, get to this position uh, after PGPX. Uh, so I, I felt that from that respect, uh, IMA was uh, much better suited and that it's played out well. Okay, yeah. Th thanks a lot for that. I think the class size, like, I think your time it was a little smaller. Right now it's around 140 people. Yeah, yeah. so, so, it, now, a little, so it was one section at the time. Right, yeah, but still relatively smaller compared to the other schools. Though. So that, that still gives us better opportunity to interact with people. So, right. uh, and, uh, sorry, that's uh, one of the drivers that I think uh, led to my choosing over at IMA as well, is that I mean, there are fewer people here. <laughs> so Yes, yes, yes. I think it's, uh, I, I really think the course is much more serious business. I think it's uh, uh, people come to, uh, for this course in order of choice. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of passion in everyone who comes and I, even till date, uh, the connection we have across the, 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 the folks is uh, incredible. Um, absolutely. And I think uh, that that's one of the things that uh, we'll probably have to explore a bit more. So, um, you know, coming back to that time in, uh, when you passed out in 2008, uh, when, when you hear PCPX or, or IMA, what, what comes to your mind? What were your subjects that you spent a long time, uh, you know, uh, pouring over or what are your fondest memories from this place that kind of still stay with you for so long after leaving? So obviously, um, you know, there's academic and there's non-academic uh, memories. I'm sure the non-academic memories will be very similar to everybody. 
for for everybody, right? The, the, the groups you form, the friendships you form. Actually, through this through this entire COVID time, uh, this group has actually kept each other going. This is the one group that has kept each other going. We actually have a monthly uh, catch up, um, you know, Zoom call uh, once a month uh, among all of us. Till now, Saturday night, um, you know, over. Uh, over your favorite beverage, let's just say. Uh, so, uh, no, because these days people are all having green tea. I don't know why. Uh, so, uh, so we uh, so we still have a once a month catch up uh, uh, call, um, and this is still the network that uh, many of us rely for personal professional opinions. So, whether it is um, you know what should be my next career move, or now we've reached a stage where people are actually doing business with each other. So I've had a few of my colleagues, you know, uh, you know, we're actually approaching each other's organizations for connections and you know setting up meetings and doing business with each other. Uh, naturally, uh, you know, investment advice, you know, uh, personal finance. So there's quite a bit of personal connectivity that has formed, and I and I think you, you know, you are still in the course. Over the next you know 10, 15 years, there will be a lot lot of new dimensions that you will build. Now, I, I'm going to contrast this to my IIT Madras class. We had a 20-year union last December. We all met. Uh, it's very hard to you know, rekindle that kind of connection after 20 years. Most of us couldn't even recognize each other. Uh, I thought I was the only one. Uh, right? So, uh, but having said that, I think PGPX, that, that's one aspect. Of course, uh, what, what this course also did is it really pushed all of us very hard, extremely hard. And this was a time I think many of us were, many of us were and still are quite were quite comfortable in our careers. People don't come in, get into PGPX without having done well in the careers. But this is a time when you get a root shock. Uh, and you know, I would say by the end of the course, uh, you learn the meaning of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Uh, so that's something that really uh, you know uh, uh, made a difference uh, to all of us. Of course, on the personal front, I was lucky enough that my wife came and stayed with me. Uh, and so we formed, uh, you know, another few networks of friendships, etc. But now coming to the professional side, I think there is there is a lot. There's a, there's a lot that I've gained. Um, there are, I'll tell you, um, uh, I in particular remember, you know, when I finished my BTEC and I spent about 10, 12 years doing engineering R&D, I could go back and say I've used majority of my classwork in my career. Uh, today, having spent six years in consulting and five years in managing a large operation. I've used majority of the case studies uh, that I've gone through in IMA PGPX, majority of them, right? Um, that's why I was talking about disruptive innovation and this Clayton Christensen uh, case study, which Professor Sarah Mukherjee did. Um, uh, because we, last year, we were in a situation where we were being completely beaten by competition. Uh, and we said, we have to go into a low cost strategy. We will dramatically cut costs. We will make our products very cheap. Then it was very helpful to see how other companies have done this. And what are the do's and don'ts of trying to go from going high-end, you know, what I would call business class airline to go into low-end budget airline and, and how these two have to, you know, the approaches to these two are different. So I would say that that operations research course was for, certainly a game changer. Um, similarly, my very first uh, you know, consulting case, right, uh, in McKinsey after I came out of PGPX uh, was actually a, a, a drop-dead replica of one of the case studies we did in uh, PGPX. I don't know if you guys did the Enercon wind energy case, or it's too too old. Um, have you done that? It's still there. It's still there. It's still there. You've so uh, have you finished the case? Uh, yeah, I think uh, we over that uh, earlier. And and do you remember what the answer to the case is? 
I remember 12 years later. I think that one was left off as a defense, but uh, I'm curious to hear your answer to that. It depends on the answer for that case, right? So basically, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll refresh your memory about it, right? So the case basically says these guys were putting up these 12 wind turbines uh, in the middle of the desert, uh, and the project is way late, uh, and there is a huge penalty associated with completing the project late. Uh, there's a huge financial penalty. They're resource crunched. Uh, rains have washed off the roads. You know, things are falling apart. The crane doesn't work, blah, blah. Everything has gone wrong. And then they ask you whether, what do you do to complete the project? And there is a printout from their project management software, which gives you the status of every single line item on the project, each one of the 12 wind turbines. And at the end of it, uh, the question is, can you create an optimized solution to put the resources for, to, you know, to do a CCPM, critical chain project management? At least the way we did the case, and that was really an eye-opener, was uh, the professor asked, just relook at the situation, right? Everything is going wrong. There is some several hundred crores at risk. Do you think the project management software has been updated for the last three months? And the answer is absolutely not. The data in the project management software is junk, right? When all these things are going on, do you think people are going to go there and update every day, I did this, I did that? No. They're focused on getting the job done, right? So my first case coming out of McKinsey was a very, very similar project, a 15,000 crore rupee capital, capital project in, in the northern part of India. And um, they had a very similar online project management system. And it showed that the project was 25% complete, 25%, mind you. It had been running for three years and it had to be commissioned in the next three months. And so the funding body sitting out of London had hired McKinsey to fly in and figure this thing out. And for McKinsey had been there for the past several months. I came in the last three to four months. Um, the first thing I realized that uh, was that the project management status is absolutely not in sync with what's going on. And given the urgency, uh, the company on the ground, the contractor on the ground, actually flew in some very hotshot project managers who came in and over the next three months worked three shifts 24 seven came up with many, many, many creative solutions and got the project executed two weeks ahead of time. Right. And then he called me and said, uh, you're McKinsey, you know how to handle this computer stuff. Please go update the project management system. So it reflects reality now. So, <laughs> so I'm telling you there, there is a lot of merit. There's a lot of merit to what there is. Uh, cut to another famous term that uh, Professor Mukherjee uses, cheetahs and elephants. You guys have heard that term, right? Of course, yes. Yeah, you've heard of cheetahs and elephants. I'm living that life right now. I'm living that li life right now. So we're an organization which is making, on the one hand, a product for um, uh, for uh, heart disease, uh, you know, called a torvastatin, uh, which is one of the most the biggest blockbuster molecules, right, um, uh, in in the world. And we make about 300 metric tons per annum of this drug. Uh, and you know, we are now putting up a plant for another 100 metric tons. So it's, it's that huge. That's a ton a day. It's a thousand kilograms a day, right? And, and it's basically a, a huge building, 24 meter tall building with, you know, you, you can imagine it's like a four story building that makes this drug round the clock. The other product we're making in the same plant, two buildings down, is one where we will make no more than 300 grams per annum. 300 grams per year, right? It's a cancer molecule, extremely complicated to make. If the earlier product 
could get made in about six or seven chemical steps. This one has 73 chemical steps, right? And it has to be handled very, very carefully. The entire, the entire production area is two rooms, two large rooms, maybe you know, five, 6,000 square foot. And the largest production vessel is a glass vessel, Yebig. Uh, and so we're now talking about the same plant having an elephant, which is 300 metric tons per annum, and then having a cheetah. And then you have to now you know, balance the, 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 the mindset of the plant head who cannot measure this cheetah problem by resource utilization. Because in the larger plant, you will say, what percentage of my reactors are occupied? Now, how, you know, what is the uptime of the whole system? In this cheetah problem, you're just looking to see how much are you making, right? So um, I, I would say this is just one example in operations. The same thing applies in HR and people management and people development. What motivates people? What are the pressures and thoughts of uh, senior management? Um, now, cost accounting. Uh, I, I'm sure we all went through our first term uh, doing cost accounting where we got, uh, let's say, marks and scores in our first test that we never, never imagined we would get, right? Uh, yeah, I still have PTSD from that. Yeah. <laughs> I still got some PTSD out of it. I'm living that life right now, right? So we have a situation where we're, we're working on reducing the cost of a product. And uh, we've committed that we will save 10 crores per annum by reducing the cost. And 10 crores did not come. So we're all scratching our head to find did the cost per kilogram reduce or the raw material cost increase or we're not selling as much material or what's going on? Um, uh, or as a, as a volume increase, how do you draw baseline for savings, et cetera? So I would say that if you, um, if you, you know, there, there is reality in everything that's done. And that's one of the things I really appreciate going through PGPX because uh, in many of the cases, I got a, I, I got a contra view. Uh, I've since then done some case studies in, in various other stints, a few management education programs, et cetera, where I've had professors from Harvard or other places come and do some cases. But I, I don't think I will forget how some professors at IIM Ahmedabad really took a contra view to cases. Uh, and uh, the answer is not what you would expect. The answer to the Enercon case is not what you would expect. Nobody would ever tell you that you know, the data is wrong. The data that's been given in the case annexure is wrong, right? Similarly, if you look at the, I don't know if you've done the uh, Mumbai, uh, uh, you know, the Dabawala case, the Harvard-Mumbai Dabawala case, right? So there is a case study that Harvard has written about the Dabawalas of Mumbai. Um, and, you know, a lot of great things, right? So you'll say a lot of good things about that. Uh, but at the end of the, 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 the case, the, the additional question that we discussed was, how come this model has not been replicated in any other city in India, right? And the answer to that is this entire Dabawala's success is built upon the metro system of Mumbai or the local train system of Mumbai and the linear map of Mumbai, the fact that it is north-south, it doesn't go east-west. Delhi is a big circle, Bangalore is a big circle, right? So uh, some of these contra views taken by, uh, during these case discussions, uh, you know, both by the participants and the professors, I think were something quite unique. I've done cases outside of IIM Ahmedabad as well. I've never seen this. Amen. Wow. Uh, you know, one of the things that people kind of uh, ask when they come before the, the program, and I think we are seeing that now with the next batch probably thinking of coming in, is, well, what can this place give us? And I think you summed it up uh, as perfectly as somebody could. So uh, thank you so much for that. And uh, with that, sorry, I think uh, we are nearing the end of our podcast.
it's been an absolute pleasure to have you uh, from both uh, me, Amshik, and of course the wider IMA fraternity. Uh, and we look forward to hearing from you again. Likewise, thank you for having me. It was fun. <laughs>